Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Dracula, starring Bella Lugosi, David Manners, Helen Chandler, Dwight Fry, and Edward Von Sloan. Based on Dracula by Bram Stoker and Dracula by Hamilton Dean and John L. Balderston. Screenplay by Garrett Fort and directed by Todd Browning. And then this has on here uncredited Carl Frund. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Mm-hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Back to Rye Smile Films. We're starting a new film review cast set all around the world of Bram Stoker's Dracula. But a particular emphasis on the character of... Renfield, yep. you idiot. <laughs> um, being that the new uh, release with Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage Renfield was released yesterday, we're going to uh, build up to that and uh, talk about that film. But let's start at the roots. Let's start at the OG the, from 1931, uh, the original Universal Monster, Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about this. I think this is going to be a really long and lengthy conversation yeah. and uh, maybe some controversial opinions on the film as well. Okay. Uh, I can't wait to get into it. Um, and as I promised, Matt, I uh, got us a new bottle this week, Basil Hayden's. I know we've had uh, the original label, Smoked and Toasted, I don't think, and the, the Dark Rye mm-hmm. with the Maroon label. I don't think we've ever had... This version, which is red wine cask finished, and it felt very vampire appropriate. <laughs> right to the letter, even the label looks like it's covered in blood. Yeah, exactly. So I'll read a little bit of this. So it's it's a secondary finished in California red wine cask. It doesn't say what type of wine. Uh, uh, the special release is ripe with cherries and dried fruit with notes of charred oak. Let's see. 80 proof. Oh, you definitely get the fruit there. I don't know if I get the oak, but I definitely get the fruit. Like a dehydrated cherry? Yes. But I tried finding on mm. there. And like for those it. of you who don't know, Basil Hayden's, they're kind of under the Jim Beam family of whiskeys, same distillery. I don't know how long it, you have to second distill it in the red wine cast. It doesn't really say how long, like... I imagine that might be kind of quick, right? Maybe I think so too. six months, less than a year, possibly. It might just absorb it rel- relatively quickly. We have to be careful too, because too much of the wine, mm-hmm. and you're going to get wine yeah. bourbon <laughs> instead of bourbon bourbon. Yeah, that, that, that I think that sounds like a delicate balance. There's a lot of chemistry going on right there. Yeah. What do you think? Love it. Basil Hayden's a really good bottle for uh, a really reasonable price. What did ne- you pay, 50 This one's 50 yeah. This, so this, since it's a special release, this one's a little mm. pricier than the standard label. But, man, this they have not steered us wrong in the slightest. To Basil Hayden? To Basil. <laughs> to Renfield. <laughs> mm. uh, before we get started, Matt, just to kind of ease into the episode, uh, <laughs> I have a question for you. Uh, on a scale of zero to 10, zero, you have no concern. 10, you're very concerned. A film that we've been teasing and talking about that has, we haven't seen a poster, a trailer, a still image from the set. Aquaman. No. (laughs) (laughs) Also may be in danger, right? Yeah. How worried are, are you on the status of the Salem's Lot adaptation with Fighter pilot Bob Lewis Pullman as the Ben Mears role, a film that I think was supposed to come out last year, mm-hmm. is completed and filmed, and it's nowhere near, it's on not on any release date docket uh, this year. 
When did that come up? Was that two weeks ago on the show that came up? I think so. Yeah, I dug a little bit into that and nothing that was an article in Variety or some schlocky internet yeah. um, hot take website. Mm-hmm. But my eyebrows were raised a little bit even more so now and I just sort of dismissed it. But gosh, why is there not a release date on this? This can't be that complex a film. And we've been talking about that for 70 plus weeks, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, terribly worried about mm. it. There's something about that franchise that makes the visual rendition of it ultimately doomed. Yeah. It's a great novel. Like yeah. I might argue Fantastic top story. three Stephen King's all time. It's for my me. favorite King. Okay. Yeah. I, I might even go with you on mm-hmm. that. I don't see why. And it's, it's not even all that unadaptable. I get the gunslinger series being very difficult to adapt yeah. or the dark tower series. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. This is not hard to it. This is a straight rollout vampire story. Yeah. Twin Peaks with vampires, people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at what they did in 81, the David Soul version, 77, I think. Yeah. Okay, that that yeah. period. Yeah, that's a B movie, but all you need is a little town mm-hmm. and someone that's scary enough to play Barlow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess eight. I think I'm at an eight too. Mm-hmm. I think there's some stuff we don't know yet that, and it might be because the movie might be really bad. Jesse, I got to ask you a question. Yeah. I know you don't know the answer, but just hypothesizing with me here. Mm-hmm. How did they screw that shoot up? There's four different versions, the book and then three adaptations that are already available, right? Mm-hmm. Three adaptations? Two. Yeah. No, th- the book and at least two, the Rob Lowe one and this one. Well, there's the book, the soul film, the Rob Lowe version, then the unauth- the, the sequel with... Uh, Return to Salem's Lot. Oh, which I love, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and then now this one, yeah. Okay, so even if we take the Return to Salem's Lot, you have the source material, mm-hmm. you have the David Soul version and the Rob Lowe version. Wasn't there a series they made out of it too? I don't think so. Okay, so... Yeah. Three, mm-hmm. it's not like there's no idea where to go with this. There's plenty of material to look at. You yeah. could even look at the first film, the David Soul film, and be like, here's the mistakes, A, B, C, and D. And number one mistake is they made it for like $16. Mm-hmm. It's not that complex a story. Is it caught up in some legal rights with Stephen King? I don't know. I feel like he doesn't, if, since it's Warner Brothers and they they did the Soul version, I don't think he has like real a, really a say in any type of blessing or anything, they could just make whatever version they want. I'm just, I'm concerned that there's... What did you read this week that piqued your interest? No, I was was just thinking about it just because, you know, we're talking about vamps Mm. today, right? And I was like, gosh, how come we haven't seen a a teaser poster for this film or like a 30-second tease of footage? Yeah. And I think they did uh, show some footage at uh, CinemaCon last April, Mm. like a sizzle reel. How come we haven't seen that? Yeah. I think there's trouble on the horizon. So so are you going so far like maybe that movie in the very vampire vein never sees the light of day? No, I think it'll see the light of day. I just don't think, I don't think it's going to be very good. I think there's some verily telling red flags uh, amiss right now. Other than the uh, character, the Pullman. I know no one else in the movie. Yeah. Mm. Well, let me one up your Salem's lot or sidle up to your Salem's lot with a really disappointing. And I know we don't do small screen on this cause that was some ages ago with yeah. the Patreon, but we finished your honor, which is the Cranston one. Yeah. And it was really strong through one season and then 
all of the episodes except for the final episode in season two. I don't know if they didn't get renewed, which mm-hmm. would be shocking to me because it was a very solid show, mm-hmm. or if Cranston just didn't want to do it. I have never seen a hurried up ending <laughs> to a series like the one I watched Tuesday night mm-hmm. with the final season two episode of Your Honor. Mm. They just mailed in and said, we'll kill this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. And it ended in like a 17 minute, I don't know, walk through the lives of. Interesting. Memoir kind of <laughs> um, about where everybody was terrible Aye. which kind of pissed me off because i invested some time in that and i was happy investing the time because it was quite enjoyable yeah you've told me many times you check this one out right don't because it's gonna leave you high and dry oh man that's disappointing right yeah maybe they didn't get the renewal right when i was like well we got to wrap up another three seasons of material in 20 minutes right yeah <laughs> like a 16 minute montage oh shit man. that's frustrating right yeah, oh is. man that's one of the dangers with tv but talk about Speaking of rushed endings, let's talk about Dracula, but first let's talk about our flight question. Okay, Dracula 1931, we're going to make, I think, an argument or maybe not an argument about its important place in horror history. At the end of the day, it is kind of an important film of this genre. So my flight question this week is, what do you think are the top, not counting Dracula, because we're going to talk about it in a bit, the top three most important horror films of all time and why? I'm not going in three, two, one. I'm just going with the three. Sure. So. Yeah, trying to grade which one's the most of the three importance. Yeah. So I'm going to start with, I think, one that's pretty obvious, and that's going to be The Exorcist. Did a whole show on that, so I don't need to revisit the show. I think that movie is most important horror because I think it's the most critically acclaimed, and for a large part of my life, which is filled with lots of horror entries, it was the most terrifying film I've ever witnessed. Might still be. Might still be. Yeah. Um. Again, we've talked about, not to replay that episode, a lot of that has to do with my upbringing and your upbringing too, Mm -hmm. and you just cannot do some of the things that you do in that movie. So the taboo piece certainly played, but I don't know how the taboo piece doesn't play with everyone, because even if you're not Catholic or Christian or you're agnostic, you cannot do some of the things that that Reagan infestation of the devil does Mm -hmm. or demon does. So that certainly has to be in there. Uh Pretty low-hanging fruit, obvious, kind of an obvious answer, but obvious because I just think it's also so right. Mm-hmm. So that's one of mine. What do you got? I'm going to go with, from 1960, I'm going to go with Psycho for my my first entry. And I think, you know, talk about two classic eps, right? Go back and listen to both of those breakdowns on those films. But I, we made the argument in that film that there was everything leading up to Psycho, which was very monster and science fiction heavy. And then after that, then after what Norman Bates presents in that is this real man, this threat, this not supernatural entity, that there was a real fear of humans, right? It's just the person next door, your neighbor, your, you know, just whatever. 
could be this crazy person just hanging out over there. So I think that's a breaking point. And then just all the crazy stuff that Hitch did with the release of that film and you will not be admitted after this film starts to preserve the secrets. I think there's a lot of great marketing things that go in with Psycho and it's just a absolute masterpiece. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. So it's my, one of my important films in, I think, the annals of horror. Hard to argue with that one. Mm. I think also one thing that that added was the ability to take true story mostly and put it on the silver screen in horror. Yeah. Okay. Number two for me, then I think I'm going to go with the bride of Frankenstein. Uh, we talked about this off mic before the show began this or Frankenstein could easily be replaced with one or the other. I'm going to lean on the side of this one because it proved that you could franchise a character in the horror genre and have people continue to remain interested. That sounds like, of (laughs) course you can now, right? I mean, what are we talking? No shit, Matt. Yeah. But if you think about horror in those days, Mm -hmm. it was called horror because what people witnessed was so horrifying. That's a subset in the early thirties in modern cinema or post pre world war two cinema goers in the middle of the great depression interesting group to kind of monetize you kind of have to naturally be a little bit sick i do think you have to be a little bit sick to really appreciate horror yeah. whether that's strange fascination with death or an admission of the terror in my case yeah. how terrified of dying i actually am yeah. kind of still am to this day not kind of i am period just own it um therapy here yeah. Right, right, smile this morning. <laughs> Morbid curiosities about the uncanny, right? Love that. Yeah. People went. And then, in a really smart move, they beautified horror. The bride, in her own horrifying way, is shockingly beautiful. Mm-hmm. I don't want to marry her, and I don't want to bed her. Yeah. <laughs> but I kind of get it. I'm yeah. very interested in her. In, not in a Betty Davis kind of way, but kind of in a Betty Davis sort of way. Is yeah. she good looking? Because she's not in the beginning of that film when we see her with that that Mary Shelley little weird piece to that. I movie. like that. I like, Do you that, like little, that? that little prologue to the film where they're just like, tell us the story. How could someone so innocent and beautiful craft, craft us a tale of horror such as this? Yeah. And then they tell you the story of the story, right? Yeah. I kind And then she's the one that plays mm-hmm. kind of the cre- her own creation come to life her the own author becomes the bride yeah we got to do that film one of these days and Let's dr do it. Pretorius's jar of cabinet of curiosities right yeah and i think in some ways that film's better mm-hmm. in some ways it's not but in some ways it is so long term importance can't argue that that's not it's a great choice we go with that i love it Number two for me, I hope you let me have this. Uh, I'm going to qualify it as, as, as a bit of a horror film, but just kind of talking of how it kind of fits in the vein of blockbuster, I got to go with Jaws. Sure. Uh, and just the the summer staying power that film has had and the ability to scare people clearly right out of the oceans and out of maybe out of their showers and swimming pools too. Yeah. The fear that that film created with just nothing, right? It's just camera angles and John Williams beautiful score and Spielberg's expert direction. I mean, it's the opening scene alone that sets the stage, but it was, it happened on such a grand scale in the middle of the summer that, you know, we're still doing it now. Summer movie season, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah. 
I don't think you can understate the importance of a film like Jaws uh, and its impact. And, you know, we saw it just, just last year, this 3D version. And it still plays. It still rocks. Uh, that scene, Ben Gardner's head coming out of the boat, man. If you, if you don't see it coming, it's getting you. Like, out, it's, yeah. it's getting you. <laughs> so I'm going to go Jaws, 75. Love that choice. Yeah. Another classic ep. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that one? We recorded that one. We were like in like tank tops. In here. Yeah. I <laughs> and, our, and our like flip flops. And it was like very much an ocean vibe in the recording studio that day. I was going back and looking at some of the pictures. Mm-hmm. When we used to do the weekly picture of the episode. Yeah. yeah. That one for, uh, for I'm pulling you out of the drain. Yeah. With it. Where it was still so good. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> I think I'm going to go where you went, but with a different film, and that's the special effects territory. So I'm going to go back to classic Hollywood, and I'm going to go with The Wolfman. Yeah. Uh, pretty much the same reasons that you did. Taking the human form and bastardizing it in some manifestation of uncanny or horrific or whatever terminology you'd like to lo- use there that fits your categorization of, God, that looks like a human, but it's still kind of not. And it goes to the conversation we had about that film with why they chose in that movie to make Lon Chaney Jr. bipedal. Hugely important decision because it left the human element there, whereas Bela Lugosi was a four-legged wolf wolf. The questions after probably, what, an hour and a half in that episode, we still did not answer, and it still remains one of the bigger puzzles in all of werewolfdom that has yet to be answered, and they can't. We haven't done that film. We've never done The Wolfman? Mm. We did American Werewolf in London. Oh, that's right. I think that's where that conversation lies. That's the film we should do, too. Maybe The Bride and the Wolfman are the next round of classic that we do. I would love it. And do Creature. Throw, let's throw Creature in there. Yeah. Love well, it. Let's do that. I love it, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's a conversation to have. Why is he upright when he should be on all fours? Dude, Larry Talbot's a pervert in that Total movie. pervert. Dude, he's with his gigantic telescope, wink, wink, uh, yeah. spying at Gwen at, in her shop. And then he, like... Finds a way to like connive into like her and her friend go into this gypsy fair and then like convinces the friend not to go. Dude, it's wild, dude. His character's nuts. Especially because the friend seems like she's all in and he just sort of boots her to the curb oh. for the one who's not on the market. And Mr. Claude Rain's floating around that thing too. So yeah, we got to do the wolf man. Frustrating character outside of that film. Mm-hmm. Werewolves and American Werewolf in London. But most of the... I guess we could maybe make an argument for the howling. I guess, sort of. Um, you know, werewolves are frustrating. Sure. In sort of that whole category that we bring up from time to time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's my third choice. Great choice. Thank you. Here number, it is. Home run, buddy. Num- Swing for the fences. Number three for me, you know, I had to look at importance. I had to look at influence and just its stamp on cultural significance. Another classic ep <laughs> and a film I don't think we gave higher than maybe a call mm. rating on. We were pretty hard on it, and I think rightfully so, but I can't deny its impact. It's the Blair Witch Project. Oh, wow. Yeah. On found footage, on marketing, on using the internet as a way to spread fear in an interesting pre-creepypasta way, right? Yeah. But that film, I still don't think is particularly scary and not really well made. A film like Paranormal Activity and Wreck, which we did in that same cast, I think are infinitely better. Sure. But there's just something about the fever pitch of that indie filmmaking in 99 when that came out 
and just everyone losing their minds, thinking those people were really dead that you're watching this movie on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and making everyone sick because it's so shaky, Cam, and the, su- the suggestion of the real Blair Witch, I can't deny its power and its place in, in horror history. Yeah, and one line at the bottom of the, the ad that you saw in the magazine, call your theater because you may not get it if you don't request it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Of course they were going to get it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big machine behind that. And that's the brilliance of Hollywood when occasionally they get out of their own way and mm-hmm. come up with something that they let be cool instead of ruining it in the executive offices. Yeah, they kind of just, yeah, like they, they fed the machine of just suggestion and and creativity and they just kind of let that thing i think yeah we talked about you know the cast had to kind of go into hiding for a couple months because they really wanted them to think they were dead Mm -hmm. right yep wild yeah but again a film i still stand by i still don't think it's very good at call rating at best (laughs) yeah just an average film paranormal activity does it way better but Mm -hmm. it just was not first i don't think there's a paranormal activity without blair witch really so it's yeah no way yeah do we want to do honorable mentions sure i have a couple yeah go ahead yeah, of course, Halloween, but like that's just the, uh, no, I think the low-hanging fruit of all low-hanging fruits. Yeah, it, it is, but it also isn't because there's an artistry to Michael in that movie mm-hmm. that after, gosh, I think we're in season three of all that coming, or we're, in, we're through four now. Yeah, we're going into five. <laughs> okay, so that's 12 <laughs> looks at those three characters. Yeah. And there's some nice entries in there. None of them ever get to the level that Michael gets to in one. No, yeah, he's the pinnacle. He's the pedestal. And, you know, Michael, Freddy, and Jason, Pinhead 2, even though we haven't done that series. Chucky. We will not do the Pinhead. I don't want to. No, maybe the first one to talk about Clyde Barker and some weird S&M stuff and Pleasure and Pain. But after the second film, man, that's a deep dive into schlock and shit. Yeah, terrible. (laughs) Yeah. To be the best one of all of those, that's something. Yeah. So if we go there, then you also kind of have to go what I think is where that began, and that's Eyes Without a Face. Yeah. So that would be my honorable mention. Another classic episode. You said there's a trend here. We've done all these episodes because I think they're so influential, but I think they warrant great conversation. Uh, so, yeah, go back and listen to all those really heavy thematic themes. I think they're all really enjoyable episodes. Any consideration to the importance of Ghost Story for the bravery to go full <laughs> frontal? Male full, fun, full frontal. Craig Lawson, man. I, I he love was, it. Poor guy was so cold. I love it. A film that more people still need to see. For sure. Uh, one more honorable mention. I, you know, I would, I would say The Exorcist as well. Uh, there's some consideration, I think, for Silence of the Lambs in there in terms of prestige whore. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I was kind of floating around there. I was kind of floating around with some Val Luton cat people as well. And just a uh, low budget B studio making suggestive horror with no money. Mm-hmm. It's kind of inspirational into the eight twenty fours of today's world. Right. So yeah, that's, I, but I didn't go there, but I, I like that film and I would really like to talk about that one one day as well. I like your list. I should see some of those films you talked about. Yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> yeah. What's this jaws I keep hearing of? Never heard of it. Um, someone saw it with me. Maybe it was you. Uh, but we got a ton to talk about today. Yeah, check out my notes for today's episode here. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we got there's some stuff to talk about. But let's dive right into our review breakdown of Dracula. He wants me to ask if you can wait and go on after sunrise. Well, I'm sorry, but there's a carriage meeting me at Borgo Pass at midnight. Borgo Pass? Yes. Whose carriage? Count Dracula's. Count Dracula? Yes. 
Castle Dracula? Yes, that's where I'm going. To the castle? Yes. No. You mustn't go there. We people of the mountains believe that the castle there are vampires. Dracula and his wives, they take the form of wolves and bats. They leave their coffins at night and they feed on the blood of the living. But that's all superstition. Why, I... I can't understand why... Hey, Nukes it clear enough! Look, the sun. And if they stone, they leave their coffins. We must go indoors. Wait it out. Yeah, wait it out there. We'll talk about it here in just a second. So, you see my crazy notes here. I had to type them up this week, Matt. My goodness. Uh, I spent a lot of time with this film and this production. I watched uh, the original. I watched the Spanish-language version, which I would love to talk about yeah. towards the end. I watched two documentaries on the disc. One was, or no, three. One was Dracula, The Road to Dracula. One was Bela Lugosi, The Dark Prince, which was kind of all about his life and career, mm. which was fascinating. And uh, Dracula, The Restoration, which was how Universal for their centennial 100th anniversary was going back to 100 of their films to restore them to a more, you know, viewable option. And what they were doing with Dracula was so fascinating because, for example, you know, a career I would love to have would be film restoration. I'm just endlessly fascinated by essentially restoring something that will be lost to time if they don't do it, right? Yeah. The Swan Lake uh, beginning and the original film print of this film was kind of degrading. And so it would kind of like would like speed up in certain parts because of just the warping of the sound uh, track on the film. Mm. So they actually had to take the the perfect version of that, which was in the Spanish language version of, for their credit. So they took that one from that one and added it to this one. Mm. For that audio track, I, I just thought that was, they're just, they're taking all the pieces and they're taking a few pieces of film from this version that this collector has and what Universal has to get the best possible version of the film that we've ever seen. That's great. Uh, so I spent a lot of time just with this film and this production, but I think we got to start at the origin of this. And it was kind of the genesis of the question that I asked you today, which was Bram Stoker's original novel, mm -hmm. 1898, I believe this thing comes out. I looked at his bibliography and the guy was a writer, mm -hmm. but could you tell me one other book that that guy wrote? No, not one. His legacy is this character and Dracula, you know, loosely inspired by Vlad the Impaler, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of found it fascinating. He never set foot in Transylvania for any type of inspiration, but Matt, my big question to you to just right out of the gate, we got to talk about it. Not just this film, but altogether is Dracula the most important piece of horror fiction of all time. Oh. And I say that being, think of all the iterations of this story that they've done from Lugosi to Christopher Lee to Jack Palance to Franklin Gallet to Gary Oldman to Nicholas Cage. <laughs> but then think of something we really like talking about, which is lore and rules and structure. Uh, as we're going to get into and in the the Hungarian chef in this clip, yeah. he kind of laid out a couple important pieces of vampire lore that I think are being heard for the first time by most audiences, which is these things sleep in coffins and they feed on the blood of the living 
at night. Stoker's laying all that out in his text. So what do you you think about all that? Yeah, possibly. It's a bold statement, right? Ever is tough, right? Anything ever makes it a little bit tougher. Mm -hmm. It's worth discussing. And I don't know if that's the path we want to go down to, because then we're going to head off into many different rabbit holes about what else might be considered rival there. Yeah. There's a really strong possibility. One of the things that I think benefits any vampire character, if adhere to with the rules that this sets up, is a fighting chance for the protagonist against it. If Dracula is as fast and as strong and as agile and powerful as the vampire lore in this film presents it, humans do not have a chance. I don't care who you are, you have no shot. When you add to that... He operates at night, which is when we are going to be tired and asleep and unable to see whether we're asleep or it's just dark. The odds are greatly stacked against us, us as mankind. The rules around that keep something that is ridiculously obscure, somewhat grounded, Mm -hmm. somewhat mortal, and somewhat defeatable. Yeah. Now, who defeats him in this movie is a bit absurd, and there's no way those ass clowns could give even the slightest bit of worry to Count Dracula. Yeah. (laughs) But nonetheless, I think my answer is possibly strong, possibly yes. What's your answer to that question? I think for me today, this Mm -hmm. day, recording this episode, I think it's a yes. Yeah. I tried to think of, you know, I think Shelley's novel of Frankenstein came out earlier and influential, and especially in the vein of body horror that would influence the Cronenbergs and the Ari Asters of the world, right? Yeah, sure. But this is just, I think, so timeless. And the original text, it's, it's in, if you've never read it, it's like diary entries. You're reading like Jonathan Harker's like accounts of all this weird shit that's happening to him, right? Mm. It's not very prose, like a traditional novel, which is difficult to kind of get past. But. They live in the coffins. They have to sleep in coffins with earth from their homeland, right? Okay, there's something. And then Wolfbane, in this film, garlic uh, kind of across the board. The mirror reflection, the crucifixes, the stakes through the heart. uh, All these things peppered out throughout this story, I think, are... They're influential to the werewolves, right? All these rules that we have to... Well, they exist because of A, B, C, and D, and you defeat them with X, Y, and Z, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this is this is huge. And if, man, if Stoker's legacy is Dracula, man, so be it. That's a pretty great legacy, yeah, right? Good job, buddy. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, now, the the original, the, the road to kind of get here to this film is interesting, too, in that, you know, Nosferatu is an unauthorized adaptation of his film, which I think is a pretty great little film. Uh, but the Stoker estate sued and was just like, you didn't ask us for permission, so... They one of the the rulings in that proceeding was it has to come out of the theaters and you must destroy all prints of that film. Can you imagine if they actually went through with that? Mm, what a shame that would have been. It'd be lost to time, right? Yeah. Thankfully, it kind of it lives on in many different uh, incarnations and iterations. Check out the Werner Herzog version of that film, which is really good. Mm. Uh, but then they adapt this thing for the stage. Uh, early Broadway vaudeville stage play in the early 20s. 
and it gets really popular. Uh, popular, you know, Bela Lugosi plays him for hundreds of performances of of this character. So mm. when Carl Lemley and you know they're starting Universal, and then his son uh, Junior, like he's like, well, I want to I want to adapt this for the studio. So they they do the right thing, right? They they pay forty thousand dollars for the rights to this story, which what is that today? Like a couple million, right? Yeah. We're going to make Dracula into a feature film. So I think where, you know, this differs from, you know, other versions that we're going to talk about is that they adapted the stage play in less of Stoker's novel because it was really pared down for a lower budget. That's why we got Renfield here at the beginning instead of Jonathan Harker. Mm. And, you know, the casting, what do you think of this, Matt? Uh, We'll talk about Bella here in a second, and he played him on stage, but they were gearing this as a Lon Chaney senior vehicle and he was going to play Dracula and Van Helsing. <laughs> He's going to play both characters. That would have been terrible. It'd have been wild. But I just think of the makeups that that guy created mm-hmm. stretching eyes with like piano wire and weird things that like, what would his Dracula look like yeah. in my heaven blockbuster? I get, to, I'm going to get to see that. Right. Love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they, they get a lot of people wanted to play this part. They looked at a lot of people, people denied. And then it's, we're, we're, it's horror, right? Not everyone wants to do that. It's chagrined back in, even in 31, right? Yes. But they get Bela in here and then Edward Von Sloan and he played Ben Helsing on the stage play as well. So, you know, they have the cast. I got all this Then they get Todd Browning of all people to, mm-hmm. to dive into this thing. You want to talk about him for just just a little bit, just of what yes. we, we know about him? Because, you know, he is obsessed with these stories of the uncanny and freaks. Oh, my God. Yeah. so obvious, right? Yeah. But about weird outsiders. And this is kind of an interesting film for him, right? If you look at freaks, I don't think Dracula is a logical sequence. I could maybe see Caligari. Um... I could maybe see Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And there is some body dysmorphia, I suppose, that goes on in this, but it's to a far less degree than the exploitative stuff that he did with freaks, namely freaks. Um, Outside of freaks and Dracula, which are two really important films, not to belittle those, my taste appreciation for Todd Browning kind of dissipates to almost nothing. Yeah. So my question is, did he happen to land two really awesome properties and deliver on amazing stories? And certainly that's the case for Stroker's Dracula. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and address that. Or was this a guy that in maybe some Lark type manner decided to sit down in the way that Antonia brought up some years ago now? Yeah as just kind of something that we can do on the weekend with my buddies because we kind of like this sort of dark shit. Mm -hmm. And then went on to whatever pastor she thought might have been greener. It's hard to say because there's not really a lot to compare these two films from Browning to later in his career. Well, he made made a a few more after that until, but but by 38, he was done. Done. And a young man done. Mm -hmm. Not old. I bet off the top of your head, can you name any of the other ones? No. Yeah, me because they're trash. Yeah. I think Freaks has a lot to do with it. I think there's a stamp of disapproval yeah. laid upon that film yeah. at that time. Mm-hmm. Now we recognize it as this uncanny fi- uh, horror film, which, again, another one I would love to talk about one day. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and if you guys, if you haven't seen Freaks, there's nothing that can prepare you for some of the things in that film. Right. The human torso rolling a cig, right? Mm-hmm. Or the, the chicken woman. Yeah. Or Google Gobble. There's nothing that can prepare you for something that's in 1932, I believe. The things you're about to see in that in, the, in that film, they could never be made today, right? Yeah. But yeah, I can't tell you a single other Browning film. This is kind of it. It's kind of a flash in the pan for him. But I think he does a pretty good job. But then as I was kind of doing some digging and research, this production's a bit of an unorganized mess. Mm. He's like kind of like there. Like there's accounts of the cinematographer, Carl Freund, that he was directing some scenes. And it sounds like a Roland Emmerich situation over here. Yeah. And then he's interesting because he comes over from Germany and he brings that German expressionist lighting, which is amazing in this thing. Like the highlights of the lighting on Dracula's eyes in this film are incredible. And then he's the one that directs the the, the Karloff mummy the next year. So he's in that universal stable, but yeah, it sounds like a mess. And then on top of that, Von Sloan and Helen Chandler are just like, this movie's going to be a Disaster. A disaster, and who could care? Who could give a fart in the wind about Dracula? Man, those two are very wrong, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, it doesn't sound like it was, you know, peaches and cream, right? No. And we'll talk about the Spanish version of this after the fact, but they kind of had their shit together <laughs> making that movie. They did, they, yeah. <laughs> um, dare you say that? Maybe we're lucky we ever saw some kind of viewable, understandable version of Dracula. Possibly. Yeah, I think we're a bit lucky. $355,000 budget on a 36-day shoot. Yeah, we're making a movie in a month. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy Turn times. them in, turn them out. And it's coming out like two months later. But let's talk about a little bit of the story, and we'll get into some more of the nooks and crannies of the production and just the legacy of this of this film. But we start with uh, credits, Swan Lake. Uh, and it's the only piece of music in this movie. Now, you know me, I'm the music guy. I'm the soundtrack. I just love that stuff. What do you think of that? Does that bother you? Is there like times when you're just like, man, I wish a little jaunty tune could like give me some tone to what I'm supposed to be feeling here. It's a fairly silent movie. I guess I've never thought about that. With Dracula, there is a regal and formalness to the character, and I think a Swan Lake type score helps. But, yeah, God, Jesse, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, is Bela Lugosi, I guess the question then is, is Bela Lugosi good at the character because he's good in the quiet space of what is 1931 creepy? And so you're just, because he is the star of the film by a lot, playing this really huge, important character. Or is it... There's nothing else really to look at, so you might as well just focus on this. And they get out quick enough that you don't get bored. Well, I wonder too. I don't know. I wonder if you know this is the first talkie adaptation of this film, and like the jazz singers, like two years post this film or before this film. Mm-hmm. Do we really want to put that much emphasis on the production of the dialogue and the speaking that we're just like, well, just get that music out of here because that's silent film way of doing things, right? We have a new thing called voices. So we'll use the voices instead of the music. I mean, that Maybe. could be a way of going to it, but I've always, it's, you get the Swan Lake and then the mummy, uh, Karloff's mummy, they use Swan Lake in their credits as well. Hmm. It fits this film a whole lot better, uh, kind of thinking of that, you know, that orchestration uh, and how it fits here. 
And then we get right into it. We're here on the Universal Backlot in our little buggy and carriage with Carla Lemley, which was uh, uh, the niece of Carl Lemley Sr., mm. if, I, if I, I do believe. And she's the one speaking for the, she's the one reading from the book, right? And she's like, oh, Borgo Pass and all this. And we're introduced to Dwight Fry as Renfield. And Matt, I'm going to tell you right now, and you might agree with me, I think this man steals the whole damn movie. I do too. Yeah. They didn't mean to do that, but he does. It just happened inadvertently, right? And I like how normal and nonchalant... I got it it later. Sweet. How normal and nonchalant he is here at the beginning. He just seems like a regular dude. He's just like, yeah, I got to go visit this guy at this creepy place. Can you get the carriage to go take me? And everyone's just like... Oh my God, like you can't go there at night. Vampires prowl that castle. Mm-hmm. This urban legend and all this fear talking about what they know about Dracula. And he's just like, yeah, I just, I got a job to do. I got to go sell this guy some real estate. Mm-hmm. But I love his presence. I just like how normal he is. And then when he switches and he's ran field, the guy's, uh, he's, he's otherworldly in this thing. The eyes, his voice, his laugh. We're going to play a lot of it here in the episode, but. Does that hurt the film a little bit that the supporting character steals the film? I mean, he, he's phenomenal in this thing. He steals the film because I think you and I like him, and that's why we're doing the cast is to look at Renfield. But I don't know if the intention, and I don't know if common moviegoer might share that same belief. You and I have talked about Dwight Fry, and whether it's Igor or whatever side role he appeared in in any of these classic films going forward mm-hmm. a lot. I don't know for not cinephile Dracula fan if he does. I think he becomes an important tapestry in the decoration of the house. Really important tapestry in the decoration of the house. And an important role too, right? The familiar. Huge, right? right. Well, you're right. Mm -hmm. That's the question I was going to ask you. Is there a vampire without the familiar? I think the answer is no, because you have to have someone take care of you. And that's, Essentially, the whole story of let the right one in. During the day, right? Yeah. Yeah. But Dwight Fry is really good at being whatever version of crazy Renfield gets to. And he's also really good at showing an evolution of mild-mannered Carfax Abbey dealing real estate agent to bloodthirsty psychopath at the end. Dracula doesn't get that arc. Dracula is what Dracula is when he comes out at the beginning and he's dead at the end. Dracula's arc's kind of boring in this movie. (laughs) Right? No, you're right. It is. He is kind of a singular arced character, which is I eat and love. They don't even get into kind of the tragic part of this character, which is like, I don't want to live anymore. Like, I want to die. I want to fall in love and die. Even the Mina piece on this, which is the attempts to humanize him. Oh, dude, man, Mina's a sleepwalking corpse oh, in this film. God, fall. yeah, exactly. Yeah, well said. Take all those things you put in there, and the hard study on this, Fry wins today in this kind of discussion. Mm-hmm. But the legacy is Lugosi, right? Well, I think it's still top five Halloween costumes every year mm-hmm. is Dracula. And it's not zombie vampire it's fucking regal transylvania carfax abbey bella gosi prim and proper black suit you know buttoned up formal count dracula yeah um you know my right fl- or wrong my flight question most important films i mean this i think this film is in the discussion and yeah. 
I don't know who holds the record right now, if it's Sherlock Holmes or Count Dracula, mm. of who's been played the most on film. But yeah, good. whenever you utter the words Dracula, I mean, he's the image we think of, right? Yeah. Yes. I love Christopher Lee's version of this towering six foot five count, but I still think of him. Yeah. I love Gary Oldman's portrayal of him. Is that really how tall Christopher Lee is? Yeah, he's six five. He's really tall. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I like so many different versions of this character, but. I always come back to this. And I think the shocking thing for, for film fans, with he only played Dracula twice mm-hmm. in this film and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. But you kind of get the idea that man, this guy played him 10 times. He did. He played him like Iron Man, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wild, but we get to see him here for the first time. They, 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 they arrange a carriage for Renfield to go to Borg, through Borgo Pass to the castle. And it's the Count himself. What do you think of this? Is this Dracula or is this just like a trick of the mind that it's the visage of Bella picking him up and then he turns into a bat? I don't know where to go with that. And I, I this particular version's been done, you know, this the travel to the castle's been done very uniquely in many iterations. But man, we see his eyes there just illuminated with this hat and this cloak. And Renfield's just like, yeah, this is really strange and weird. And I, I don't think it's until he gets in the castle he's like, oh man, this I'm in a weird spot here. Uh, I'll play a little clip. I am Dracula. Oh, it's really good to see you. I don't know what happened to the driver and my luggage and well, and with all this, I I thought I was in the wrong place. I bid you welcome. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Those three lines, I mean, they're just, they're legendary, right? Yep. Children of the night, I bid you welcome. I am Dracula. Legendary. I mean, everyone knows that voice, this Hungarian accent that Bela Lugosi is delivering. It's a great entrance to a character coming mm-hmm. down to the spiderweb steps here with his cloak and his candle. And it's just like, yeah, welcome to my spook mansion. <laughs> Dwight Fry shows up, Renfield shows up in this place, and these wolves, wolves, I'm talking like Bella goes here, these wolves are howling, and that's scary, yeah. especially for someone that is as milk toasty as Renfield is at the beginning of this. Great description. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And the, your host says, listen to the children of the night, what beautiful music they make. Yeah, I think I'm out. I'm looking for the door, yeah, I man. Think, I think I'm out. Hey, uh, where's the bathroom? And then I make a hard left to the door. Yeah, if I'm not out here, it's instantly in this very next moment where uh, Dracula kind of almost transparently walks through the spider webs. Yeah, yep. And Renfield has to use his cane to kind of destroy them and walk. No amount of money in the world is making me walk through spider webs like that. I, I'm out of there at that moment, right? Amen. Yeah. It's really gross and dilapidated. Um, but we kind of get the picture. We you know we get our inciting incident right away, which is, hey, you're selling me some real estate in London because I'm looking for 
Is Dracula's goal? You know, he's looking for a bride, right? Is he looking for set up shop somewhere else? He's tired of the mountains. I guess he's tired of his three wives, man. <laughs> I need a change of pace. I need anyone you know, need to get to London where things are hopping and happening. I'm just laughing. Tired of his three wives. Yeah, his three wives. Oh no shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah, he's getting nagged at, you know, three different ways. <laughs> yeah. And so he somehow got in touch with at least this, how this film works out in touch with this guy, this real estate agent, uh, that's going to sell him some pieces of land at Carfax Abbey here in London, but they got to come and sign on the dotted line. Right. And Mm -hmm. you can be my house guest for a while and how they play and kind of dance around each other. And he cuts his finger and we see like him, like almost pounce, right. He's just like, Oh, but let me not tell him who I am just yet. Mm -hmm. I think it's all really well done. I think that they're really good together. You see how dominating, you know, Dracula is as a presence and how very milquetoast Renfield is. Yeah. And then the scene when the wives come and swarm on him, it's it's one of my favorite sequences in this entire story, which is the seduction of Harker, really. Yep. But Renfield of... at Back at home, he's got even more milquetoast Mina, right? Ugh. And you got these seductive, sexy sirens come, and they're just about to essentially just lay this man mm-hmm. in a four-way. Mm-hmm. It's pretty wild. And this is how they're going to vamp this guy to be the the familiar. And then they scurry away like children when the master comes. Because I think they're ready to finish him off until he realizes this guy is so controllable. And I don't want that many people to know who I am, so I don't want to make too many familiars. But Renfield sets himself up as the familiar by being, unfortunately, this poor bastard that has to travel all this way to get these papers signed. Um, Misfortunate occurrence with that job title, I suppose. But nonetheless, there's not a lot of opposition that Renfield offers that I think is quite intriguing to Dracula. Yeah. Um, There's a part two that really... I think you hit on it, okay, in this four-way, in this four-way seduction of this this milk toast. Yeah. In 1931, yeah. watching this dork get laid hard mm-hmm. by four sirens had to have been a very interesting moment in film for both most male movie-going fans. Yeah. That's unheard of to see that. And it's not in your face, strip him down, you know, it's it's not anything. Yeah, more suggest, suggestive than anything. Nonetheless, the penetration is still occurring. Yeah. It's reversed, though. Yeah. And there's playing a lot of sexuality and themes there that I don't think had been tapped into anywhere near the level of complexity that this is doing. And it's interesting. Yeah. How could it not be? Especially when, like you said, you compare... Again, it's him and not Harker, but if that was Harker per the story the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Man, do I want to trade I don't Monica e- Bellucci in for Winona Ryder? I think I'm good here. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think, because I, I mean, it's very virginal, right? I don't think they've had sex yet because they're waiting for marriage. No, she's just boring. So Jonathan's, yeah, he's tapping into this taboo pleasure with, with this thing. Oh, it's, it's wild. It's a wild sequence to just mm-hmm. kind of, Mention your, but yeah, 1931 audiences. Yeah, they're this might be the most horrifying scene of the movie for them. Mm-hmm. Yep. We don't talk about sex, we do it with the covers on. That's with, right, in, in the dark, in the dark, 
and on then your I, birthday. And then I go back to my separate bed. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Do you have grandparents? Do they, they have two separate beds? Mm-hmm. They have that generation? Yeah, mm-hmm. I had my grandparents. One pair of them did. Yep. Um, anyway, uh, so, so they vamper Enfield. They got a familiar now, and it's off to London. We go, but we're going to get on on a, on a boat. We got to tra- traverse the high seas. Uh, looking for the name of the, the, the Vesta, the schooner, the Vesta in this film, the Demeter in Stoker's novel, right? Yep. And we get this moment of, you know, okay, we're going to be on the high seas here. They're going to get into a typhoon or something, right? Mm-hmm. I got to look at a map. I don't know Transylvania to London. Are we going through an ocean to get there? Like, I, don't, I think that's a lot of land, right? Yeah. A lot of Eastern Europe that we're going through. I don't know. Okay, so I don't know what, where, where, how they're getting there, but whatever. Yeah. Renfield's there to master, wake up. And so unleashes Dracula to like do away with the crew, essentially, man. Wipe them out. That way when they dock... The crew's dead, and we have this box, and then a crazy man. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the highlights of the film. Yeah. Captain dead, tied to the wheel. Horrible tragedy, a horrible tragedy. Master, we are here. You can't hear what I'm saying, but we are here. We are safe. They must have come through a terrible storm. <laughs> What's that? Why? Come from that hatchway. <laughs> Why, he's mad. Look at his eyes. Why, the man's gone crazy. Yeah, if I'm a dock worker that day, I think I'm turning in my uniform. I'm, I think yeah. I'm done. I can't look at that whore sitting in the bowels of that ship. Yeah. No, oh, man, that lap. What does that, what does that do to you? Like, it's just, you don't forget it. No, and do you want to do Dwight for, Dwight for a minute or do you want to wait? Yeah, why not? The fact that he ever even landed this is almost a miracle. Mm-hmm. It's a set hand. With not, from what I've, come to know a ton of acting experience when he was on the universal lots it wasn't as this role player in this important legacy of henchmen essentially that's what he's really good at his henchmen mm-hmm. whether it's fritz or the hunch or igor or renfield or whoever mm-hmm. he played that laugh almost never happened mm-hmm. because if i'm not mistaken it was a call-in on the day of that allowed him to get cast in this part. It was a real last minute thing. Yeah. Real last minute thing. And the question you asked earlier, does he steal, or the statement you made earlier, does he steal the film from Dracula rhetorically or otherworldly? Absolutely. Because that mm-hmm. is so out of the norm where Dracula is quiet mostly. Quiet and stalking, yeah. Renfield is stalking and Ominous? Dare I say ominous? Mm-hmm. Almost didn't happen. 
so thank God it did. And thank God Dwight Fry, even though like his existence is pretty miserable mm -hmm. and has kind of a terrible life, even as he was making these films. A lot of health problems too. Yeah. A lot of health problems. Yeah. That's true horror to me. Yeah. All this stuff with the vamps is very supernatural and I can suspend my disbelief, but man, if I see just like this creepy psycho laughing with eyes grinned, uh, that's unsettling. That's it's something that sticks with you. And I think for 1931, I think it's still pretty powerful. The way that shot, I want to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Is there enough evidence in the way that is shot to make the case that Carl Freud shot that, Freud shot that, and not Todd Browning? Think about the lighting. Oh, absolutely. The, down the, yeah. down the, um, the ladder into the bowels of the ship. That's not traditional Todd Browning, Hollywood, horizon in the middle shooting. Oh, that's German expressionist. To the letter. Raw, shadowy, suggestive, very influential of film noir, right? I mean, we'd see that mm -hmm. in a noir. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you're right. Yeah. It's great. It's mm -hmm. one of the great moments of this film. So, what are you looking down into to the way he's looking up the ladder at the POV of the the men who have found the ship once it's docked? How long has he been down there? What's he been feeding on? And then are we really... I guess this madman killed the entire crew, I guess, is the play here? Yeah. Because we're not going to open up the box and see another man laying in some dirt, right? No. <laughs> Jeez. Mm. I like it in Nosferatu as well because there's a lot of shots of him rising out of the caverns and, like, you know, going after the, the crew and whatnot. But mm -hmm. this is terrific. So we're finally here, and Drac, uh, you know, comes out of his dirt in Carfix Ab, and he's like, okay, I'm just... I'm high society. I'm going to go get involved. So he goes to the theater for the this this first thing, and we meet all the rest of the players of this film. Dr. Seward, Jonathan Harker, Mina, and Lucy. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Seward done a little bit differently in this adaptation as well. He's Lucy's, no, 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 Mina's dad. Yeah. But I think he's just another suitor for the women in Stoker's novel. They're like, there's like the three men like pining after. They all want Lucy, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah, she's the one you want. Right. Uh, but dad in this one, he goes and tells her, uh, go, Dracula goes and tells Dr. Seward, ah, I bought my Abbey next to your sanitarium. <laughs> We're neighbors now. Yeah. Well, it's going to be good to see people, someone bringing life into that derelict thing across the way. And then, okay, I got to say this. We got to do this right now. Is there more of a boring character in not just this film, but all of film? Than Jonathan Harker in this film, man. He doesn't register one iota for me. What a stiff. <laughs> good. What Dude, a stiff. Your definitions are really good this week. Yeah, he, it's perfect. You look at Mina, and I'm my heart, and she's she's about as bored like as you can get too. It's pretty boring. But she's a fireworks show compared to Jonathan Harker. And oblivious and oh. just doesn't register anything on, on any type of meter for me. If there's a competition between Count Dracula and Jonathan Harker for Mina's heart. Yeah, Drax winning. Oh my God. And it's by just being able to breathe in a way that doesn't make you want to kick Jonathan Harker's ass. Like that guy is literally the poster child of the kick me sign at high school and middle school his whole life. He, you know what the worst, his worst moment in the whole film is? When he's swatting the bat? That's bad. So you can watching him run into the labyrinth of Carfax Abbey to go kill Dracula. The way he, he's almost like the guy that runs and when he runs the heels of his, his feet kick his own ass. Yeah. Like that, he's that guy. Oh, God bless you, Mina. I'm so sorry. Yeah. So your choice is the undead, 
which is Dracula, or the other undead, which is Jonathan Harker. The truth is, only one of them's still alive, though. Hey, he's a stiff man. Oh, he's yeah. a stiff. Br- brutal. I think I've always noticed that, but oh. I, I really noticed it this time because yeah. we're about to settle into a lot of talking in this movie here in a second. Yeah. Uh, and man, he just he kills me. Uh, but yeah, Mina's Mina's no better here in just a second. But he kind of I, he sets his eyes on these two women. I think. Yeah. And something that you know the novel and other adaptations will dive into a little bit more, which is this seduction and vamping of Lucy, which I am really fascinated with, which is this very, you know, uh, more sexually promiscuous woman. Not in this one, because, man, it's 31, and, man, we're doing... They're, they're all buttoned up to here, right? Yeah. But not the Spanish version. They're no. A lot more suggestive. Again, we'll talk about it in a second. But he vamps her in night one, and she's dead instantly. Like, there's not this, like whole rigmarole that the story usually goes into which is she's sick does she have some weird type of cancer uh we can't figure out we gotta do a blood transfusion because she has no blood Mm -hmm. (laughs) what's wrong with lucy she's dead instantly she's on the slab i had to rewind it and i was like was that lucy did she die or was that another victim that we weren't made aware of this movie moved to its credit moves quick but maybe almost too quickly but we can't even like Oh, oh, we're done with that, I guess. We're just moving on. Todd Browning has no idea what he's doing. Yeah. As far as the pacing of what I should show versus what I shouldn't show. There are some moments he gets right. Yeah. But this is a great example. Watching Count Dracula vamp Lucy, even if it's suggestive, but watching the entrance of him into her periphery could be handled with a lot more time. And it wouldn't make the movie any longer. Isn't the movie only like 89 minutes? No, 80, no, 78. Four. Short film. Yeah. So if you add another two minutes in for this, you're still at 76. There's plenty of room. Yeah, it's a mistake. Yeah, there was a moment. I thought there was like maybe more footage and it just cuts when they're on the slime. Like she has two puncture marks here on her neck and then it just fades to black and then we're pan <laughs> up on on uh, Van so, Helsing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, was there more there? We just kind of just, we were just done with that scene, I guess. Yep. Yep. But let's talk about another hugely important character in this whole vampire lore. Man, if we don't know the name Dracula, uh, I'm sure all of us have heard the name Van Helsing. Mm -hmm. The vampire hunter, the professor, the science element that's going to bridge the real world with the supernatural. Mm -hmm. And in here, we got Edward Von Sloan, and uh, he played him on the Broadway show. I think he has an interesting look, which is this real short white hair with these like almost like Coke bottle glasses. Uh, And he's essentially going to play the same character in the next year in Frankenstein, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But what do we think of, what do you think of that character first of all? And then Von Sloan's portrayal. I mean, like essentially it's going to become a movie between him and Lugosi going kind of like back and forth on who can outwit the next person in words, right? A little fringy. They don't make him look like this trustworthy doctor that you have all the faith that he could protect you because of the way he's he's brought. He's certainly older. Mm-hmm. Can't see two feet in front of his face. And then the way he is so immediately familiar with the vampire mythos. Oh, instantly he's just like, it's a vampire. <laughs> you have to, who the hell is this crazy guy that just showed up? And there is some of that in the film. A little bit alludes to some of the questions that he might bring up about like how valid what he says is. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Like, if I'm Lucy, or Lucy's dead, if I'm Mina, I'm really worried because it looks like I've got dorky Jonathan and crackpot quack championing my cause against the undead. 
I'm worried. Aren't you? I like it. I know. <clears throat> oh yeah, I'm, I'm. Yeah, I'm super. Yeah, I'm concerned for everyone's well being <laughs> yeah. in this film. Yeah. Uh, I I really like the Van Helsing character. I think it's yeah. a nice parallel. It's a very Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty type of like antagonist and you know protagonist type of situation that we're dealing with here. And they're both very legendary. Man, Hugh Jackman made a whole movie where he was just Van Helsing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good movie. No. Uh, but I like it. I, I think you need this element. I think the films that don't have any type of event, whether it's Anthony Hopkins or Peter Cushing, like I think if you're doing Dracula, you need this guy too. Mm-hmm. Because he's the guy that's going to convert everyone. He's the Dr. Loomis, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's an important piece into the telling of this story. So, I mean, he's he's got everyone on board of like, hey, it's a vampire. Let me convince everyone. And they go and talk to Mina, and it's like, yeah, I'm having these weird dreams and these weird things. And again, man, she is she's sleepwalking through the movie. She's just sitting in this chair. And then they do a really great vocal cut. Uh, I'm going to play the audio clip where they go like, what could have made those marks on her neck? And then the housemate is like, Count Dracula. And like that's his, his introduction. introduction. <laughs> Listen to it real quick. What could have caused them, Professor? Count Dracula. <laughs> Good evening. It's good to see you back again, Doctor. I heard you have just arrived. You, Miss Mina, you're looking exceptionally... Pardon me, Doctor Sewer. But I think Miss Mina should go to her room at once. Professor Van Helsing, I don't believe it's as important as you seem to think it is. Excuse me, Count Dracula, Professor Van Helsing. The head nods of acknowledgement. Van Helsing, the most distinguished scientist whose name we know, even in the wild Transylvania. I had a frightful dream a few nights ago. And I don't seem to be able to get it out of my mind. I hope you haven't taken my stories too seriously. Stories? Yes. In my humble effort to amuse your fiancée, Mr. Harker, I was telling her some rather grim tales of my far-off country. I can imagine. Oh, my God. God. I can't imagine <laughs> someone like you. God. Oh, shit. I can imagine. This is a wild scene. So, yeah, okay. So, what could have caused those? Count Dracula. And he comes in. He's kind of got a, like a played down version of his cape and cloak. He's kind of like in like a conductor uh, tuxedo tails. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the tit-a-tat that they're doing like Van Helsing. And this is kind of like acknowledgement that like, eh, this might be someone I might have to be concerned with, right? Yeah, uh-huh. And then Van Helsing's like, dude, get Mina to bed right now. <laughs> yep, get her out of here. <laughs> but it's a problem. I think one of the issues with this film, and you can definitely see how theatrical it was because it was done on Broadway, right? It gets really talky here for like the next 30, 35 minutes, right? Well, we're- in a 74-minute movie, that's a lot. <clears throat> it, is, it is a lot, yeah. So we're just kind of hanging out in these rooms, talking about how people are vamps, they're having weird dreams, they're walking around at night. This Count Dracula, but I do like this scene where they, the reflection test, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And again, one of the rules of a vampire won't cast a reflection. Uh, 
Because he has no soul. Yeah, in, in in the mirror. And I like how Van Helsing does it and then kind of like goads him into like, here, open up this box. And then he freaks out, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I acted like that. And so <laughs> he works to knock this cigarette box on the ground in such an angry fashion. Let me act like a buffoon <laughs> while I smash your mirror. Yeah. But we're setting the, the rules here. But the, the person keeping the pulse of this film alive while all this is happening is Renfield. And it, it, Renfield and then this uh, sanitarium worker, Martin. Yeah. These two guys are in a different movie. And it's, I think, a movie I think I'd rather watch. Wow, good. <laughs> it's okay. Like, it's, it's almost like a comedy. It's I just say it's comedic, isn't it? And I, I like how they're playing off of each other. So at the Seward Sanitarium, which, you know, his security is, you know, mixed at best. Dude, Renfield's breaking out every night, wandering around the grounds, breaking into the, the Seward estate. And this guy, Martin, is like a day late and a dollar short trying to get this guy Come back. on, old fly eater. Yeah. Back to your cash. Well, yeah, yeah, he's... They almost do have a friendship, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, this Martin's pretty hapless. Mm-hmm. But kind of Renfield is sort of hapless, too. He's becoming less hapless, but Renfield was hapless. Which, this is a question that I've always pondered about this film and the vampire mythos in general. Okay. Does the vampire become a larger entity in the story the more he is surrounded? We've already made the case offhandedly, but nonetheless, the case has been made by hapless males around him. If I'm Lucy or Mina and I've got Dr. Seward, um, Van Helsing, Van Helsing, Jonathan Harker, Jonathan Harker Martin, it's pretty slim pickings when it comes to the male selections available. Yeah. So I'd like to say that this is done to Browning's credit and he knew what he was doing, but I'm not going to give him credit to that. I think he just walked into like a really terrible acting performance, mostly by Jonathan Harker Mm -hmm. and a terrible rendition of Jonathan Harker. And then I just think Martin kind of is seen as comic relief. Yeah. Yeah. Some levity in this really kind of dark supernatural tale, right? All of that makes the vampire just seems larger, or Dracula in this case, I guess, seem larger than he probably is, and all the more endearing to the females that are looking for someone to pair themselves off with. Yeah. And I kind of don't blame any yeah, of them. Vamp me, Dracula. This, right. this might be a better life here. There might be some passion here. Like, dude, I ain't getting that. Yeah, no. That's weird, though, because despite the fact that we're making that case... I think we both agree. We're both on board saying that it really is Renfield's moments during these quiet 35 minutes of just sort of wandering about exposition dump after exposition dump that sort of saves the film. Yeah, I want a spider. I want the. I'll play the rats bit here coming up. Yeah. Dude, this guy's acting miles around everyone else, Mm -hmm. but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I want to be with the vampires. I want to be with Dracula. It seems like a a better life. Yeah. Not only have Jonathan and I not done it yet, but he ain't even going to look me in the eyes while we're doing it. This guy thinks I'm going to get pregnant if he wants to hold my hand. The thing that cracked me up most about him was his little writing pants. Mm. <laughs> mm. Where it's pulled up to like the knee and it's tucked into the knee. Yeah, dork. I'm glad that fashion uh, kind of went by the wayside. <laughs> uh, well, there goes my birthday outfit. <laughs> You're a little golfing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you look like an old-timey golfer with that, that get up there. Uh, but let me play the clip because, yeah, this is yeah Renfield on full display here. He came and stood below my window in the moonlight. 
And she promised me things. Not in words, but by doing them. Doing them? By making them happen. A red mist spread over the lawn, coming on like a flame of fire. And then he parted it. that there were thousands of rats with their eyes blazing red like his, only smaller. And then he held up his hand and they all stopped. And I thought he seemed to be saying, And the Oscar goes to. <laughs> Would never in a million years get nominated, though, right? He's so good. Yeah. And what's going to follow shortly, which we're not going to, there's no sound for it, but it's equally creepy in a totally oh. different manner. Yes. And you know it's been the screensaver on my computer for a number of years. <laughs> yes. Is when that nurse faints and he approaches her like on a all cat. Fours, yeah. She's toast, man. Yeah. He is scary. Yeah, scary. Real horror coming from this guy. Telling crazy story. I mean, this is the part you want, right? I mean, I can see how this would be. You would want this on stage because, you know, you're not the titular character. So if, yeah. if you're bad, like, it's not on you because it's not called Renfield. It's called Dracula. Right. And then you get it's such a juicy role with these monologues that you just get to chew the scenery. Does he get, okay, you brought up a great point. Mm -hmm. Does he get the best bit of dialogue, however, in this moment in the entire film? Yeah. Dracula, Bela Lugosi does not get any lines even. He gets a couple kind of Iconic children lines. of the night. Yeah. But that's a line. This is 90 seconds, two minutes. This is a monologue. About <laughs> what Dracula gives him. And to Dwight Fry's, to his credit, all in, man. Mm -hmm. Like, he's all in. So... Some of it is victory by happenstance and the better writing that Renfield gets. But also, we wouldn't talk about it if he didn't crush it mm -hmm. with that strange posture where his shoulders are rolled up and his head is protruding forward, sort of in a hunched kind of position, but like uncomfortably hunched, which makes him interestingly smaller than he naturally is because Dwight Fry is a small man but he even seems smaller, which diminishes, I think, his physical stature. However, what's coupled with that is his appearance and his vocal stature and the strength that he's emitting in this strange tale of this wicked occurrence. So at the same time as he's seeing, seeing smaller on the screen, loss of humanity, undead, not a comfortable looking physique, not the natural way body dysmorphia, I guess is where I'm all around. Mm -hmm. You're getting 
the most hardy version of someone with passion of all the males to this point in the film, which at the same time is making him seem kind of powerful. Yeah. I hope him and Martin get along really well because if he doesn't like Martin, Martin's toast. Yeah. Snap his neck like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I revisited a film that I rented to death when I was a kid. Uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It. <laughs> yes. Mel Brooks. Love it. And in so that's it's essentially a spoof version of this very film. They do all the scenes and jokes uh, aplenty. Leslie Nielsen, Harvey Corman, and uh, Peter McNichol of all people is playing Renfield. And I'll tell you this, he steals that movie too. Cause he's doing like a pseudo Dwight Fry impression mm. with his own brand of physical comedy. And it is hilarious. You might have to revisit it. Cause his scenes are by far the best. That ever happened to Peter McNichol. Oh uh, yeah. Ellie McBeal. And that was it. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'll watch it again. It I was, used to love that film too. It was, it, yeah, it's, th- th- there's a great scene where the, the Martin in that film was like, you're going to rot in this cell Renfield. And then Renfield's like, ah, he cries in the thing. And then a second later they open up the thing and he's like, you're free to go Renfield. I am. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, no, yeah, but then that, that iconic scene, yeah, your screensaver, he's just like gonna vamp up to her. Mm-hmm. So well done here. And a, a, a portion of the film that I actually forgot about that I, I thought was in this, there's this random weird subplot where kids are being killed. Not enough of that. And we get this woman walking through the forest holding that baby. That's the creepiest part of the whole movie. Yeah, it's Lucy, right? Yes. Yeah, getting for rising from the grave because her soul. Is it Lucy? I think it is. Oh, shit, really? It would make sense because he wouldn't bring his wives with him. No. Yeah. It's got to be. It has to be. Yeah. Oh, wow, Jesse. I didn't snap on that. Yeah. Because in the traditional Dracula play or uh, story, I mean, there's the whole sequence where like, we got to go stake Lucy because she's going to come back. Right. Oh, wow. So I think it is her, but kind of underplayed and underdeveloped. And then they're just like, yeah, we're done talking about that. Hey, that's big time, man. <laughs> Walking through that field or that forest with that kid in her arms crying. Yeah. It's going to devour that baby. I totally forgot about that like two minutes. Ooh. But then the film's done talking about it too. Yeah, so. yeah. We'll address it, but not in any way that's going to be too monumental because this is terrifying instead we get this incredibly boring scene which is mina and jonathan harker the two deadest people in this film that are actually alive in it uh talking and on the patio and then this bat swoops gonna in gonna get in your hair yeah and harker's swatting at the bat and then uh <laughs> what if, watch out mina this bat will get in your hair what? I This is something I just don't like in stories and film in general. I just, I hate overly oblivious characters. At some point, your character has to buy into the supernatural <laughs> or the story at heart where he's just so stupid where he's just like, yeah, okay, this bat's showing up. We didn't just see this bat turn into a wolf that ran across the lawn a few few days ago. Huh, that's funny. Oh, well, let's go back to our little pot pie. Oh, my. <laughs> I hate that. Yes, and then, yeah. so then, you know, Lucy gets taken. Mm. And then we get this, uh, we get a couple moments here. That's an interesting choice of words you just used there. What? Lucy gets taken. Yeah. I mean, Mina gets taken, but I know what you meant. Like, yeah. Taken. Mm-hmm. Did you mean vamp? Did you mean fuck? Did you mean bitten? What do you mean there? 
all the above? Just abducted? <laughs> or but, take may, it. but maybe all of the above, right? Because I think that's so loaded because I think that's the beauty of the vampire, right? Well, and I think she is vamp too because she is under the guise of the Dracula lure, right? Because mm-hmm. when he stakes, she loses it. So there is something that happens there, but yeah, taken. That's really powerful word there. And you know, and it gets even, and I think maybe in the, the coming films that we're going to allude to, we might have a little more to talk about because if, you know, Mina is per portrayed as this virginal character i mean her first sexual encounter is with dracula right yeah yeah and then she's really torn up when he's killed i mean well it's early but when we do some other iterations of renfield we you could be already laid out what we're doing going forward yeah we'll do renfield next week and then following is coppola's coppola's dracula yeah they really play up the sexuality between dracula and lucy in that one yeah and that is no holds barred Mm -hmm. taken taken but we get this moment here where Dracula comes back and he's kind of facing off with uh, Van Helsing. Van Helsing. Your will is strong, Van Helsing. More Wolfbane, more effective than Wolfbane count. Indeed. And then, Cross. I, I, I've never heard the Wolfbane thing. I don't know if that's a Broadway play or a, a garlic, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. If we're using an herb or a plant, it's it's that. I, I don't know where the hell that came from. Yeah. But then the cross, right? Yeah. This image of Christ, the antithesis of Satan, right? Mm-hmm. Is going to ward off the vampires. I mean, I think of any piece of vampire lore, I think that's the one I've always known, right? Yeah. But you better believe in it. Yeah. You can't just be showed. You better believe in the power of Christ. What does Jerry Danger say? You have to have faith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Power of Christ compels you. Yeah, you have to believe. You can't just be some zealot and yeah. have an idea about God. If you don't walk in the path of Christ, you're getting vamped too, man. Yep. And I like that. I think that's a, a, an easy rule to follow. It's the same as the silver bullet for the werewolves. Uh, we like rules, don't we? Because then yeah. the, it's a checklist of things. Hey, we're checking the boxes before we get to act three, right? Subconsciously, it also builds up a questioning that is revolving around why the cross, why garlic, why a pentagram. Mm -hmm. It creates an interest backstory, which you're never going to have answered because that's not what the movie is unless you go back to the prequel of how they came to be. Mm -hmm. And you can do that in Anne Rice if you want, I guess. But yeah. Why doesn't he have a reflection? And what do you mean he doesn't have a soul? And then you get into... What is the soul and is being bitten by a vampire because you retain most of your mortal capabilities? Is it just to remove, like there's a whole subset of interest that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. In addition to the grounding element that keeps something that's as fantastic as monsters from being so fantastical. You just like, this is such bullshit. I'm out of here. I know this we're isn't making that up it as we go along. I know this isn't that and we're going to talk about it in the next week, but that's why I'm fascinated by the prologue of the Coppola version where, you know, you have the Vlad, the impaler prologue, this image of Satan. And then the guy playing the, like the Roman Orthodox priest in that is Anthony Hopkins yeah. who plays Van Helsing Van later. Helsing, right. So this image of Christ and uh, reflection of religion is what has to do battle with ultimate evil. Right. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. To use Van... Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll Mm -hmm. get to that later. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. Because in this, it's addressed too. There seems to be a legacy 
if not legacy, at least robust familiarity between the Dracula lineage and the Van Helsing lineage because they are familiar with each other upon their first meeting in this film, the sound that you played. They know each other. Yeah. How? Mm-hmm. Well, there's backstory. Reincarnation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds wild. Yeah. But in a very religious part of Europe, right? I mean, like Eastern Europe, I mean, I think religion's crucially important to their way of life. Did you watch that BBC version of Dracula? The Van Helsing Dracula? Um, I don't think so. You need to check that out. Okay. Van Helsing's played by, um, I forget what her name is. Starts off as a nun. Mm. It It's quite good. The Dracula character is kind of weak, but... Um, not not that week. It's worth a watch. Recent, it's like recently, five years maybe. Okay, it's I'll like a little out. four part miniseries. I'm always down to watch a Dracula film. Yeah, it's, it's good. <laughs> it really is good. Okay, excellent. Uh, one more bit of audio here for comedy. He's crazy. <laughs> They're all crazy. They're all crazy except you and me. Sometimes I have me doubts about you. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that woman just admitted she's a nut. <laughs> Somebody been at her too because she's very, very robotic in that. Yes. Is that she, the one that ran, ran she's about to get? She's about to get devoured here yeah. by Renfield. Yeah. It's a pretty funny little moment it here. Is. And I think there has to be a little of just some of those moments throughout the film. And, and it's interesting because I don't think Frankenstein really has really any of that. No. It's a pretty grim tale. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of, there's not there's some smiley moments in the Wolfman, but nothing that I would say is outright humor like that's trying to be. And I think there's more humor in The Bride, too, with Una O'Connor, who's just screaming nonstop yeah. in that film. So that they do get a little bit of laughs, but interesting that they're still trying to attempt to kind of bring it back to reality just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then we get the moment that you alluded to a little bit earlier. Uh, Renfield, in his one of his nightly escapes, leads them right to the caravans of Carfix Abbey. Idiot. And these two buffoons, right? Oh, yeah. Idiot him. And when he's pleading, please, master, I want to live. I'll, I'll be good. I serve you. And, dude, he just chokes. He chokes Renfield out on this. We got to talk about a set, right? Yeah. This masterful staircase. Oh, it looks, looks great. Yeah. Uh, here on the Universal Backlot. And that's what I really like about it, too, is just like these old-timey sets done on sound stages. And they really made this staircase look very dangerous. No railings. Mm-hmm. But gothic and otherworldly right yeah but then van helsing and harker are in tow and oh my god they're my saviors i'm in trouble they have a hard time getting the door down uh but like their ally i mean they're almost kind of gifted a a a miracle right because the sun's rising so dracula instantly goes to sleep in his earth or box of earth and quick harker get me a steak but i must find mina Get me a steak so I can end the vampire curse. <laughs> so he's just wandering around the caverns doing God knows what. And I guess we're supposed to believe at this point that the shattering of one of the coffins that might have held Dracula's bride is then used as the wooden shard that they're going to stay. Ugh. Okay. Um. Then you get to, what are you breaking the coffin apart with? Some rock that you found? Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess there's a lot that's left not shown or kind of not even really cared about. Well, here. there's a lot done off screen. I wonder if that's a 
a censor thing, but there's really not censors at this time mm-hmm. yet. But you know, Dracula's staking happens off screen. We just hear some <gasps> some screams, right? Mm-hmm. And then her come out of her gaze, and that's kind of it. That's it. And then they walk, and then this was what I thought was really weird. What a weird way, last shot for the film. The two of them walking up the stairs as... Almost husband and wife. Oh, yeah, very marriage-like, right? Mm-hmm. Poor her. And then the movie just ends. Oh, fade out, done. Story's over. It's a universal picture. Yeah. I think, feel like there was something after that or something uh, different kind of, maybe them on top of the, the, at the top watching the sunrise or something. It just kind of ends so matter-of-factly and it's just like, hey. Can I speak to that for a minute? Yeah. I used to do this film every year in my film class back when I was still teaching film, film theory. Mm-hmm. And every single year, it would fade out in that abrupt manner and every one of those kids would look at me and be like, wait, is that really the end? Like they couldn't believe that the movie just... All right, bye. Go home. It's a terrible ending. Yeah. You have to get them at least out, like you said. And as the sun comes up, give Harker something. At least let him kiss her. I mean, God forbid he put his hands on his hips when he kissed her, but give it. Nope. You just out. And they would look at me. Are you, are you, yeah, no, guys, that's really the end. Wait, that's the, that's really the end. And they would just be like, what, what the hell, you know? What in the hell was that? Yeah, and I don't blame them. It's an ending right out of a Hitchcock movie. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just bizarre. And, you know, it kind of, it, it wraps up. But you're right. It's it's a quick 74 minutes. Uh, we've talked about it longer than the movie is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but do you have anything else you want to say about just the story, any of the actors, uh, just any anything floating around there? No, nothing that I'm probably not going to cover when we get to the ratings. I think I'm I'm good right now. Sure. Uh, a couple just little anecdotes here. You can I tell mean, your notes. Yeah, look at all my. I did, I, yeah, well, most of them. Uh, this was a big risk for Universal. It was you know supernatural horror, kind of strange and weird. Is people going to like this? And it proved to be a pretty decent little hit for them. Okay. Uh, and a weird release type of thing. So they released this film in its English language, and then some theaters weren't even equipped for sound. So it there's a silent film version of this film that exists out there as well. Wow. And then in a very odd turn, and I don't think they did this too frequently. I think they just were like, just throw some subtitles on the thing or just show the foreign version, right? They made a whole separate version of this movie with Spanish language actors. It's the Spanish version of Dracula, and they filmed at night. Yep. So Todd Browning and Bella and all and the crew, they film during the day. They wrap up at about five or six. And then the Spanish crew comes in and ladies and gentlemen, they kind of make a better movie, mm-hmm. at least more watchable. And I think more coherent mm-hmm. and more room to play around with and a whole lot more sensual. Yeah. The clothing is more suggestive. The, performances are really batty and, and and I think the cinematography is a little more inventive. I think the lighting's better in uh, the Todd Browning version, but it, it moves and zooms in and they do close-ups and it's, it's a lot more inventive than just this, this version that, that we watched here. So it's a little hard to find. It's kind of just a special feature on the Dracula DVD, but I, if you want to see an odd experiment, check out the Spanish language. I, I think it might be a little bit better than this movie. Legacy-wise, this film holds a lot of ground, but I think it's a it's easier to watch, honestly. 
that Hayes Code did a lot of damage mm-hmm. in cinema, and there's no question that it's in play on the way they shot Dracula. Mm-hmm. I don't think Todd Browning is afraid of the exploitative, even at this point in his career, pre-Freaks. If you're going to make Freaks, I don't think you are. This has to be buttoned up, but that was such a stifling, censoring element in film when you watch the Spanish version, you're like, yeah, she should be kind of cleavage here. And this should be kind of Mm -hmm. loose fitting. And this should be a little bit more tactile with hands. And all of those things are really, really prevalent in the Spanish version. There's a lot of black lace in the Spanish version. I kind of love that. And uh, I think it's, I want to get the name right. Lupita Tovar. Mm -hmm. Yep. Helen Chandler could never. Never. (laughs) Never. Uh, and yeah, the Hays Code would come out a few years later and then they'd get really strict. I thought this was fascinating. So you know how Frankenstein opens up with Edward Von Sloan coming coming out on stage and going, this movie's going we to scare the shit out of you? Mm-hmm. Well, there was an epilogue with him for this film. And then after the Hays Code, they like, you take that right out of this film, ladies and gentlemen. Really? And I have the audio here, so I'm going to read it in my best cool Edward Von Sloan. So he would come out on stage just like Frankenstein at the end of this film, and he would go, Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, a word before you go. We hope the memories of Dracula and Renfield don't give you bad dreams. So just a word of reassurance. When you get home tonight and the lights have been turned out and you are afraid to look behind the curtains and you dread to see a face appear at the window, why, just pull yourself together and remember that after all, there are such things as vampires. Oh, love that. Pretty awesome, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially not really reassuring the audience that like what they saw was fade out, just, go home, you're just, good. just a movie. It was like, no, 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 the, these things are going to get you in the middle of the night. Oh, gosh, love that. But then the haste comes in and was like, you take any mention of supernatural whatever's out of here, right? So any re-release of this film, and unfortunately, that's lost to time now, right? It's stupid. On, waste. on film prints that have deteriorated, but really cool. A really yeah. cool thing. Yeah. I just like this very theatrical, and you can kind of see just like film and and theater are just so intertwined still at this time where you have a guy come out on a stage and tell you this thing. I kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's kind of cool. Yeah, how can you not? Uh, Spanish language. Uh, this film was added to the National Film Registry in 2000. It's appeared on so many of the AFI and lists of quotes and villains of, I bid you, I... Children of the Night, what music they make. I mean, it's iconic, right? Uh, Bela Lugosi was buried in one of his capes that he wore for for one of these films. Uh, And then something I think you and I really like, which is film poster collecting, right? Yeah. Uh, So the Style A one-sheet poster of this film, I'm going to pull it up for you. Sold in 2017 for $525,000. It's the highest wow. selling of a uh, poster in film history. Wow. Uh, let me, uh, I have it right here. Every, you'll, you'll recognize this image. It's, you know, iconic. It's this one here. Yep. And then uh, there's a few Dracula collectors out there. Nicholas Cage uh, actually had uh, a version of the Dracula poster. It was this one that I think he auctioned off, actually. Mm. And then uh, Kirk Hammett of Metallica actually owned another uh, very valuable Style D poster, which is a version I've never seen before. But he let a a, a crew uh, hang on to that uh, to show for like a vampire exhibition at like at an art museum. I, that thing's worth like 
a lot of money. <laughs> mm. You know, for all of that collector stuff, you know what my favorite Dracula poster is? This is going to be a little bit of a reach for some of you. There's a company out there called Mondo. Yes. It's the Mondo Dracula Wives. You ever seen yeah. that one? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I'd give anything to have that poster. That one's great. It's so awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, check it out for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about. Just search Dracula Mondo or look at anything Mondo. They do amazing short prints of, of uh, alternate yeah. movie posters, not from the studios, but from independent artists, and they are amazing. But that Mondo one. Yeah, that's great. Oh, got it. Look at his eyes. Illuminated. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. Carl Freund lighting. <laughs> oh, so good. And those little red cape and that's it. God, that's beautiful. I have a couple more questions for you before we wrap this thing up. Uh, Dracula is a huge hit. Mm-hmm. So Carl Lemley Jr. is like, let's do another monster. So Frankenstein's obviously in the docket. And there's footage out there that existed. And I'm sure it's swept away in some garbage bin hundreds of years ago, right? Of... Mm. Uh, Bella Lugosi screen testing as Dracula with Dwight Fry and Edward Von Sloan in the screen test footage. And they just said, this just doesn't work. We need, oh, to, wow. we need to go in a different direction. Almost played the monster. Mm. And we know what a star making role that was for Mr. Boris Karloff at a conversation. We'll have another day, right? Yeah. Uh, hmm. Do you think it, do you think it works with Bella as the monster? He does get a crack at him later. Yeah. Much later when it's, laughably bad yes yeah Mm. okay i thought about this a lot Mm -hmm. to me bella's face is more oval Mm -hmm. and i feel like the monster needs to be more square jawed yeah yes it could work if that's how it was introduced but i can't in my mind see anybody other than boris karloff and karloff's going to take a run at at vampire at at dracula too Mm -hmm. in house of dracula it's the one where, where the carriage pl- gets kicked over and he burnt like cooks in the sun. Well, he he plays one where he plays the mad scientist in one, and John Carradine actually of all yeah. people plays Dracula. Yeah. So, yes, it could work, but Dracula seems better. I don't know, Eastern Europeanish rounded face to me, where the monster plays better squared. Well said. What about you? Uh, that's a hard sell for me. Mm. Uh, I think I'm with you. I think the the facial, how Jack Pierce is going to do that makeup on the monster. I mean, it just fits how gaunt Karloff naturally was, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, if you go to, okay, well, let's look at it in modern times. Mm-hmm. De Niro's round-faced, and I think, although that's not a terrible film, mm-hmm. I don't think he looks like a good monster in Frankenstein. Well, he's when we think of Frankenstein, what do we think? It's of? Karloff, yeah. and it's because it's square. It's flat top, square jawed. Even though he's not flat topped in the movie, and chin bone, right? Heavy, heavy Jay Leno like chin bone features. <laughs> nice, right? Yes. Okay. I think it's uh, again a what if. It's waiting for me in the heaven blockbuster, mm. but mm-hmm. I'm kind of glad we got got it how we got it. Me too. And my last question to you: So Bella only played him twice. This film and Abbott and Costello, which is a terrific rewatch, by the way. Do you wish he had played him a couple more times? Does it solidify? I don't know if it solidifies his legacy more because his legacy is this character typecast beyond belief, right? That was his curse, right? Yeah. But if he plays him a couple more times, do we maybe get a little more pathos with this character? I think the thing missing from him is this, like, I'm cursed as a vampire. Like, this sucks. How do I deal with this? And I think another film or two, we, we get into a little bit of that. Yes, I, yes. 
And I think he was pretty steadfast, according to that documentary, that he did not want to play this character again because he was afraid, I'll be this guy my whole life. He was 49 when he played Dracula in this film. And that's what he's only known for. I know, right? So, I don't know. That's tough, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I wanted to see him again. And with some expanded storytelling and maybe not strict adherence to the adapted material, who knows where this could have gone. Uh, but I think we both kind of agreed that there was, there's plenty of good bites on this bone, but there was plenty of meat left on this bone for Bella and Count Dracula by the time we fade out at the 74 and a half minute mark. <laughs> 74 and a half. You know what I mean? There's some moments where he's really good, but there's a whole lot more there. What's your favorite tasting note for new listeners? Your favorite tasting note is your favorite scene, sequence, moment, whatever of this film. What is it? Oh, there's so many to choose from. It's three. Uh, once you go first, so I don't pick the one that you want, unless you have three, too. I think I'm going to go with the introduction of the character and, and Renfield there at the steps. I think it's a great set. It's designed. Uh, the armadillos have always tripped me out. Like, why armadillos? In the caverns of Castle Dracula? That doesn't make any sense. But his iconic lines, his delivery, the cape, the candle, Renfield just being like, oh, what did I get myself into? Yeah, that spider crawling up the wall, that very fake spider crawling up the wall. You mean his little little hand coming out from the coffin yeah that's a good bit dude. i think that's mine it's it's a great and you know that's one thing i've always appreciated about the universal monster films is they all they all float around that 74 minute runtime mm-hmm. they don't screw around with kind of getting things going right it's like vampire here we go vamping him it's like 10 minutes in right yeah we're making frankenstein like 12 minutes into that movie like we're really getting to it yeah well you didn't take either of the two that i was gonna say so i'm gonna choose Oh, gosh. I think it's Renfield's vamping of the nurse, but it is a very, very close contest between the scene I just mentioned and Dracula's wives carrying that baby off in the middle of the night. Mm. Or Lucy. Or Lucy. Yeah. The, the female vampire ready to chow down on a kid. I want to say it's Lucy because, like, you know, Drac- It's Lucy. Let's just make it Lucy. Well, Drac's just like, I ain't bringing the wives with me on this big, yeah, on, on he, this on this guy's trip. He, he, <laughs> I'm going to go find some new wives. Leave yeah. these ones here. Dude, it's like, he's like going to Vegas, you know, just, you know with Renfield, right? And yes. he's like, you know, the wives ain't coming on this one. What's the... Oh, my God! Moment of Dracula. Dwight Fry's monologue that you gave. The rats. Yeah, the rats, rats, rats. Just excellent acting. Really good exposition that can be done well if the character really buys into it and sells it. That's my, oh, my God moment. I think I'll pick his uh, at the bowels of the ship looking up at the dock workers. How could it not be? True whore. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe we're alluding to someone, something, but the master <laughs> distiller, the person that you know absolutely slays and kills it on a production of a film that mm-hmm. we talk about, I got to pick Dwight Fry. It's, How could it not it's be, It's one of right? the great supporting performances of all time that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. He steals it from the lead guy whose name is above the title, Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's just the most interesting part about the whole movie. I mean, he's doing, you know, Stravinsky uh, and Lee Strasberg levels of acting in 1931. And all these guys are just, they're, they're trying to figure out how to even talk on camera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, the talkies. I got to give it to him. If you give it to him too, I ain't gonna. I do. Yeah. And Alice Cooper wrote a song about the guy. Ballad of Dwight, Dwight Fry. Yeah. Yep. He did. 
This should be interesting. How are you going to rate and grade 1931's Dracula? We have Rocket Well Call Single Barrel and Tippy Top Shelf. Where are you going for this? Single Barrel for me with the creative elements that were first timers. Uh, if this is not the first vampire movie and it's just sort of rolled out, it's probably just a call film. It's fine. Um, I do think there is some brand new territory that this movie accomplishes in the depictions of the characters on screen, especially the Dwight, Dwight Fry character. And I do think we're beginning an important step in horror cinematic history, and that's the adaptation of sourced formal literature brought to the silver screen as, ready, horror. This is the first one. This is the first one that's going to be monetized the way that it is. And the first for me always fallen, if they're well done, into that top shelf category. So, I'm sorry, single barrel category. Yeah, that's why I came up with the flight question. Because I think, you know, in terms of important horror films, this has got to be in there. Because it was the first in a Hollywood sense to take a chance on a supernatural property. Something weird and strange. A vampire film. We're adapting novels. Yeah. Okay, this is going to trip you out. This is a single barrel film in terms of legacy and importance through in and throughout. But it's a call at best film when you really look at it. I mean, this is a film that really almost bores me to tears. If not for Dwight Fry and Lugosi's iconic, you know, stature and screen performance, everything else is just very, very missable for me. Well, I mean, I think Dwight Fry has seven scenes in this whole film, mm-hmm. seven appearances on camera. Yeah. And if you're banking on those seven appearances in a 74-minute film and then whatever personification of Regal Lugosi gives you as Count Dracula, I think that's maybe even a bit too generous a rating. Are you sure you're maybe not call minus? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't understate its importance in film history. Strange, yeah, you're right. And it's remarkable because the very following year, they're about to churn out a film that I think is yards better in every conceivable way in direction, acting, story, and it's Frankenstein. It mm-hmm. just Frankenstein's a top shelf film, yeah. And it's just it's it's a year difference mm-hmm. in terms of productions. It's wild. Well, and James Whale different too. Yeah, there you go. A maybe whale of difference. Maybe that's the the issue. There's a Tom a Todd Browning deficiency and a James Whale strength. Right here you go. Uh, but, uh, and then I was going to say, yeah, I much prefer the Spanish language version. Uh, if you can find it and locate it, I think it's a better watch all around. It's the same story. It's the same sets. It's the same everything. It's mm-hmm. just way more watchable. Yeah. Uh, but with that, to your rating. To your rating. Let's wrap this thing up with a nightcap. did fail to mention this so i did you know i think in the late 90s uh philip glass classic uh uh, classic musician was commissioned i think by universal to do an alternative score for this film and it's an audio optional audio track on the the blu-ray 
to watch with his score. And I, I did that for the first time. And so there's music actually throughout the entire film and mm. it actually livens it up a little bit. Good. <laughs> um, and it's just a string quartet. There's no any percussion or anything like that. It's just, you know, just, uh, I think that's violin, cello, uh, high top bass, and maybe one other thing in there. Stradivarius maybe, mm. but it was a different way to watch the film for sure. Cool. What's our nightcap this week? Okay, which of the following films is more important in the history of cinema? I think we finally decided on four options. Yes, Dracula, The Wizard of Oz, Snow White, or Gone with the Wind. You can have first crack at this one. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, I can absolutely eliminate one of them from consideration, and that's Gone with the Wind. <laughs> you had to put it in there just to acknowledge it, but it's out for me too. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, strong case for Dracula in a horror space, but again, horror is still, to this day, not for everybody. Nope. There was one film in there, and if we have the same one, we'll just have a combo about it. It is. Uh, that I think is just required viewing at some point in your adolescence or mm -hmm. at some point. And I can't think of another classic film that does that. It's not Dracula. It's not Snow White. Right. It's The Wizard of Oz. It is. Now, what is it about that? What is it about that story and that production and that film that a film almost 90 years old at some point in our lives, collective lives, no matter which generation we're a part of, we find ourselves watching that story in that particular film. Organically tentpole. Mm. It's creepy and weird enough to keep dad intrigued. It's lighthearted where it needs to be and shiny and sunny enough to keep mom and little sis there. There's a little horror in there too with the witch. Yeah. There's a, little, a lot of horror in there with the witch. Yeah. Um... And I think that there is enough visually stimulating pieces even today that it keeps four-year-old mm -hmm. intrigued. There were moments in that film all the way to like second and third grade. And I think they used to show that every, was it Thanksgiving? Mm -hmm. There was a holiday they always showed it. Was it Thanksgiving? Yeah. When the monkeys attacked and when the witch really got her witchiness on, I would still hide my eyes. Uh, the trepidation that I felt every time the witch showed up to take Ruth, um, Dorothy's Ruby slippers still is troubling the sparks on her hand, mm. the elation when she gets crushed, um, or when we, you know, do away with the nefarious elements in that the letdown when you get the wizard is just some clown behind a cloak. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or, Organically tentpole. Yeah. It's Without kinda, trying. Yeah, almost effortlessly, right? Mm -hmm. I think at, at one point we need to do that film on this podcast just in terms of breaking down the story, but it's a fish out of water tale that's yeah. the best that's maybe ever been done. It's a musical, which a, ain't my first favorite category, but I think the songs that they decide to do in there are actually all really good. Mm -hmm. And there's something really magical about entering a sepia-tinted world into the world of color. Real vibrant color, too. Yep. Not just, like, greens and reds, but kind of all the colors. Yellows, blues. And it just has a legacy into it, whether it's the production history and uh, Buddy Ebsen, you know, and being allergic to the, the Tin Man paint that they put on him. Or like, I can't do this character. It's going to kill me, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And then all the stuff with the Munchkin suicide in the background and the Pink Floyd syncing up with Dark Side of the Moon. There's yeah. so much lore with this story. And I think it's it's just so watchable. It's so it, it is enjoyable. It's in so many different ways. So I know I only gave you four choices. Yeah. But would you make the case and we could probably think up some other ones? Casa mm-hmm. Blanca, Citizen Kane, yeah. eh, I guess. Is this the most important film in all of cinema? Is The Wizard of Oz the most important film of all of cinema today, right now, and here? It might be. Might be, huh? In terms of storytelling, special effects, genre mixing, musical acting, enjoyability, and uh, generational gap transcendence? Has to be. Wow. The only other film that I think could give it a run for its money, and I... I can't believe I'm saying this. It's too soon to put it in kind of conversation. It's, it's Star Wars. New Hope is maybe has some of the same fish out of water, fantastical genre bending elements in a more effects heavy kind of way. Ben Hur, no. Ten Commandments, no. It was Charlton Heston's chin. Well, th- there's no religious element in either of those two films. It's fairly, you know, non secular, right? Let's go the other. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Secular. Mm-hmm. Let's go the other way. Why are we both so out on Gone with the Wind? Straight boredom. Too long. Too melodramatic. A little too racist for me. <laughs> a little. Just a little. <laughs> just yeah. No. It's it's kind of yeah. It, problematic. Uh. And yeah, but it's kind of a boring story. I know that was a popular book when it came out, and everyone wanted to see the adaptation. But man, that's a hard watch. Mm-hmm. That's a once in a lifetime if to check a box. Because well, that gets into a really interesting period, like long-term, short-term, mm-hmm. of the episodic, melodrama, grandiose thing that MGM is going to endeavor over and over, all the way up to like Cleopatra. Yeah. Whereas I think Wizard of Oz and the supernatural science fiction, to a certain degree, mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell, Hero's Quest, yep. has a, a better lifespan to it. Mm-hmm. Simple. And it's funny you brought up Star Wars because if you take that measurement we just said, Hero's Quest, I mean, that literally is from sacrificial scapegoat to mm-hmm. all of the archetypal roles to the letter. Yeah, the companions, that film. the wise sage, mm-hmm. all, the, all that stuff fits into Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah, yeah, and Star Wars. Wow, one, two, start Wizard of Oz, Star Wars? I think so. My goodness. I think that's a pretty good one, too. You know me. I'd be like, I do know you. I'd be like, Halloween, I mean... You, no, it's worth consideration. You also. know, that's my number one. But in, in real reality film terms, you know, it's those two. Godfather, I, I can certainly make a case for it. Yeah. But I, don't, I can't think of it. it to, to get youth to watch classic cinema is hard. And black and white cinema, Wizard of Oz is the perfect bridge. Mm-hmm. It's to, to all of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Wild. I would love to be like Time Machine uh, to be in the theater and watch... Dorothy opened the door from sepia into color. Man, people must have just like shit their pants in the theaters. They must have just been like, I can what is this? Yeah. And there had been color films before, yeah. but not like that. No. Yeah, right. That's often misquoted. This is the first color film. It's not, but it's the first big one that's done like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. This one makes 1939 such a monumental year. And Victor Fleming directing both that and Gone with the Wind. And Gone with the Wind has a crazy production history too, as does Wizard of Oz. That guy must have been exhausted. Yeah. No wonder he never made another film I've ever heard of, right? Yeah, you're right, huh? You're right. 
crazy. It was a great question, but the second you did it, I I, I knew my answer. I kind of knew when I was putting him, like, maybe he's going to, like, throw a curve on here and give me Snow White because we can make a case there, too. But Snow White is sort of... Do you think Snow White's, like, required viewing? I, I do. I, I, do you? But I think that Gone... No, I'm sorry, Gone with Wind. Wizard of Oz does everything that Snow White does in a non-animated version better. They're the same film, essentially, without being the same film. Yeah. And The Wizard of Oz does it better. Can I tell you my favorite Wizard of Oz story? Yeah. It's a personal story. Okay. So do you remember the pay-per-view days? Yeah. You, know, you just like call and order a film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, my dad uh, pay-per-viewed Saving Private Ryan for the mm-hmm. fam, right? You know, some light viewing. <laughs> Thinking, you know, I was ready for it. I'm about nine, eight or nine. I was not ready. I was not ready for the Omaha beach sequence. And the second I saw a severed limb, I was, I started crying. I'll be honest with you. Mm. If I'd never seen gore like that before or that intensity. And so I had to leave the room and I went, they watched my mom and dad watched the rest of the movie. And I went into their room and I watched the wizard of Oz. Decompressed with the wizard of Oz. (laughs) The horror roots run deep in you. Not even afraid to admit it. It was just, that was the palate cleanser. That's awesome. And I liked it. I, I just had a good time. I had my own good time. Yep. I've come around to say Sam Brett Ryan's awesome. Yes, it is. It's a good movie. At eight or nine, I was not ready for something I'd never seen before. Like no way. That. Yeah, I hadn't seen violence like that before. That and Robocop, man, they really turned me out on violence being visceral and carnage and sinewy. And I was like, yeah, I was just kind of used to just seeing a stormtrooper shoot a guy and he was just, just had a, like a, a black hole in him or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a wrap on Dracula. I knew it would be a long episode because how could it not? There was too much to talk about in this particular film. But Episode's twice as long as the freaking movie, yeah. man. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, and Dwight Fry got his just desserts as he deserves uh, uh, in this uh, film conversation. But we have Renfield came out this uh, yesterday. So I think, yeah, let's tackle that one next week. Uh, give, give people about a week to see that thing. Uh, as we've said before, we're curious yet nervous at the tone and just the portrayal of what this is even going to look like. Nicholas Cage as Dracula. I know, right? Buckle uh, up. Yeah, so uh, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, so I think yeah, we'll go into this thing fresh next week, and sure. this should be pretty exciting. Yeah, and should be. We'll wrap up with the, the Coppola Dracula the week after that, and then... It's summertime, ladies and gentlemen, so... Here it comes. Here it comes, but to that... To that. Cheers. Cheers. I got to get going. Uh, I'm, I'm going to throw my mattress out. You want to help me find a box of dirt to sleep in? Yeah, I think I saw some right underneath that red mist and the rats down there at oh. the bottom of this abbey that we're recording from. Very well. Uh, we'll see you all next week, everybody. It won't be milk toast next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Milk toast is like my favorite word. <laughs> Stiffs. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Dracula is property of Universal Pictures and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. I'm loyal to you, master. I'm your slave. I didn't betray you. Oh, no, don't. Don't kill me. Let me live, please. 
punish me, torture me, but let me live. I can't die with all those lines on my conscience, all that blood on my head. 